I guess what really drove me was the hope. So generally patients don't go on clinical trials unless they're failing their current therapies. Um, so it was the hope that, that we could potentially provide them. Thank you very much, Jessica, for um, sitting down with us today for HBNG podcast. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And you? Yes, cannot complain. <laughs> um, it's funny because, um, yeah, we obviously tried to get you on the podcast last year um, around the start of winter time, but as everyone knows, um, the whole country pretty much went back into a crazy lockdown. So. That wasn't able to happen. Obviously, things kind of got moved around, but I'm really, really happy that um, we were able to get you on this time around. No worries. It's my pleasure. And thank you very much. Um, so today, we're obviously um, we've gotten you on because um, of your role within the healthcare industry, um, where you've come from, the kind of realms and businesses and companies that you've worked with, going from a clinical standpoint into um into pharma but also it's international women's day so it was really important for us um as a as a business and as hpg engage to to, to reach out to women like yourself who've done amazing amazing work throughout the, the healthcare and pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry but just before we get into it find out a little bit about you your career and place that you've worked we just want to start off with a little riddle which i find quite um quite interesting no pressure and just to say <laughs> I, I I didn't get the riddle. Oh. I didn't get the okay. riddle. So no um, this is going to be so awkward if you end up getting it straight it away. It will be but... even more awkward for me if I can't. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. So the riddle is: a father is about to bring his son to a job interview, applying for a position at a large stockbroker's company in the city. Just as they arrive at the company's parking lot, the son's phone rings. He looks at his father who says, go ahead, answer it. The caller is the trading company's CEO who says, good luck son, you've got this. The son ends the call and once again looks at his father who is still next to him in the car. How is this possible? The CEO is his mother. Well, that's embarrassing for me. You've got it straight away. That's impressive. Okay, that was really impressive. Okay, I've I've asked quite a few people that riddle, and no one got it. Oh. No did you ask any it. women that question? I did ask one, and she didn't get it. But the majority were men, and they didn't oh. get it, which I find quite interesting. How there is like an unconscious yeah. bias when it comes to people in that high power where people were saying oh it was his it was i don't know a close relative yeah. who calls him son someone said his grandfather no one thought to say well the majority of them thought to say the mother or even like a, a grandmother so um that's great that you got that first time <laughs> i'm very very impressed very impressed you. you know what you know what? i actually thought you'd have gotten a shoot i was like you know i think she'll get this i don't know why i don't know why after we've obviously spoken quite a few times um, since our initial meeting about a year and a half ago. So I, I don't know, I just got the energy that you'd have gotten that straight away. But amazing, well Ooh, done. Pressure's so, on. Just, <laughs> now you can relax. The rest of the podcast is going to be very easy. Um, so just to start off, um, just give us a little bit of a background in, into you. Talk a little bit about, I, don't, I guess, your, your university experience. Yeah. Obviously, um, 
you're from Canada. Yeah. Um, so talk about your university experience, why you chose the degrees that you did, and then touch a little bit on kind of your, your early starting career in terms of clinical and working in hospital. Yeah, um, I grew up in Canada, as you mentioned. I did a bachelor's degree in biology in, um, I'm trying to remember now, it was a while ago, animal physiology and microbiology. And then when I finished that, I got into nuclear medicine. Um, and there were a few things. Um, once I did my bachelor's, I was toying up between speech therapy and medical radiation physics. Um, but I was better in physics than I was in psychology. So nuclear medicine, it is. That was the program that I got into. Um, I did that for two and a half years. And then once I wrote my Canadian national licensing exam that allows me to practice in Canada, I thought the world is my oyster and I was looking to go and travel somewhere. Um, I'd looked at the UK, I'd looked at the US, but the US is not terribly different for a Canadian. So um, Australia was another option. And so I teed up my, my arrival here with the timing to write the Australian national licensing exam because I couldn't get a visa to work here unless I'd written that exam and I was legally able to practice here. Um, wrote the exam, passed it, and was lucky enough to get a job in Sydney. And I worked in a few hospitals in Sydney. I worked at North Shore Private, um, at Hornsby, Concord. So I had a big mix of public and private. Um, but the longest tenure was at North Shore Private. And then I did that for about five years and had a friend at the time, a colleague who got into Novartis and that really tweaked my interest in terms of clinical operations and the R&D side of pharma. Um, and so I made the jump to Roche and I started off as a CRA, so a clinical research associate, and then worked my yeah. way up um, in the 10 years that I was there. So um, just to go back slightly, so in terms of your, your start in terms of uh, clinical and hospital in Australia. Did you do any of that back in Canada? Uh, when you do your training, you do have like a residency type thing. So I did that in Canada. Yeah. Um, but as soon as I got my licensing exam, I came down to Australia. And how, how did that how did that kind of compare between very, Canada? Very and... similar. So Canada um, is often considered like Australia, but just on ice. So it's very similar in terms <laughs> of its education, its healthcare. But I guess the one big difference is there's no private hospitals. There's no private sector. So um, okay. that opened up some, some extra job opportunities, if you will, because there's probably, you know, double, maybe triple the number of hospitals in Australia compared to Canada, simply because there's only the, yeah. private, uh, the public sector. Amazing. So you moved to Australia, you worked in hospital, both private and public while you were yes. here, and that was over a five year period. Yes. And then you said a friend was working for Novartis. So what, what about your friend working Novartis kind and their kind of career? And um, what intrigued you to kind of move out of clinical and then I guess into, into I guess your first role into pharma and role? Yeah, well, she, she got into clinical operations and the R&D side as well. Um, and I guess what appealed to me, I, uh, twofold, um, not having to work on call anymore and getting 3 a.m. phone calls that a patient was sick. So that was a bit um, appealing. But also the aspect of constantly learning and being exposed to cutting edge research, 
um, learning about new diseases and new drugs, that, that component of the job really appealed to me. And although you are working in pharma, you're very closely related to the patients. You're very, you don't deal with them one-on-one, but you're recruiting patients into clinical trials. So you do have that sense of being very patient-centric and being um, really motivated on how well they can do. Did you feel as if you moving into, I guess, into the pharma industry with Roche was more of a passion for you and a way of you feeling as if you're giving back more than you would have in the clinical side? Or was um, there, or was that like a, a thought that you felt, oh, this is what I would like to use my knowledge and my experience to Yeah, give I mean, to, my, to my clinical experience was definitely very helpful. Um, working in the yeah. R&D side, you are dealing with the medical notes, you're scrutinizing the medical notes. So you do have to have an understanding. So definitely my background was very helpful. Um, But I guess what really drove me was the hope. So generally patients don't go on clinical trials unless they're failing their current therapies. Um, So it was the hope that that we could potentially provide them. Now, having said that, I've worked on big phase three studies that have failed and it's equally as devastating when that happens because you're so invested in the hope in helping these patients where there's no other therapies available. So it's a double-edged sword, but yeah, it definitely was inspiring to be part of the process and part of the movement forward and the hope for treating these patients. And what usually happens whenever you're obviously going through a clinical trial and it doesn't pass the the stages is it kind of a let's start from the beginning and work our way back up or do you guys just end up moving on to something else or how how does that work just to give people the list yeah um, there's no easy answer um you know i've been on projects where they have failed and they've cancelled them immediately um and then the company itself will reprioritize and put their investment into something else it might not be that therapeutic area Um, but i've also been on projects where they have failed but there is information that they've been able to get out of it so that might end up being that they've identified certain biomarkers that might be a predictor of disease progression or um, response to the drug and so they might use that information to help redesign the protocol and re-scrutinize the inclusion criteria. So it's it really depends on the company and what their priorities are um, at that time. Yeah. It could also be the competitive landscape. If there's a lot of companies that are looking at that particular indication, that might be an excuse for the company to just cut their losses and move into a it, yeah. different direction. Um, but, you know, clinical trials are, they provide invaluable research and they help to further the scientific understanding of the diseases that we're trying to treat. Even if they don't meet their endpoint, there's still valuable information that can be had. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just all about learning and exploring new opportunities. For sure. It's almost um, it's almost like a win-win in some kind of ways, even if it doesn't really get through all the phases. And um, there's so much, so much really positive information gathered from that that can then, I guess, in turn, then be used for other potential diseases down yeah. the line. Clo- close enough to the COVID vaccine, yeah. And the theory that was used behind that, it wasn't a new kind of... Technology. Yeah, Yeah, technology. It was already been been used and been created for for above decades. So I I, I totally get that. Um, So let's kind of touch on your your experience at Roche. You were there for 10 years. That's that's a long (laughs) time. 
that's uh, you're getting really long months of leave after 10 <laughs> <Yes>. years. <laughs> so that's a commitment. How, how was your experience there? Because obviously you, you went from originally a clinical research associate, which you were, you were that for about four years. How was that? And the, I guess the progression from there to, I guess, a medical, a medical manager? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed my time at Roche and that really formed the foundation of my understanding of the industry. Um, when I first became a CRA, it was a very steep learning curve, understanding about the TGA and the PBS and, and yeah, just the Australian um, pharma industry and landscape itself. Um, you know, it took about four years for me to get comfortable within my role and how it fit in within the company um, and to really get an understanding of where I might want to progress. Because when I first started, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't imagine doing anything other than the job that I had. Mm. Um, and then after that, I became a project manager and, um, the way that Roche's structure was, it was a regional project manager. So I looked after the Asia Pacific region, excluding China at that time. Um, and then I went into a therapeutic area lead, which was really more around the strategy and, um, bidding for the studies that came to Australia and, and really placing yeah. the best ones in Australia that fit the Australian landscape. Um, that also took into consideration the competitive landscape and what comparators we had available in the country. Um, and then after that, I had the opportunity to be a medical manager in um, pipeline products and early pre-launch. And um, so I, yeah. I felt really, really grateful to have been exposed to so many different aspects of the product life cycle. Um, you said after it took you about four years to get comfortable being... A clinical research associate, which which sounds yet yeah, I would I'd imagine the going into something new like that would take that length of time. So after those four years, was it kind of an active decision and a spot and a and more of a, a decision for you to okay, I'm quite comfortable now. I need to do something else to to push myself. Yeah. Or was it was it kind of a, a steady progression where no, it was like, definitely oh, um, it was definitely intentional. Um, I yeah. had some great line managers that would always ask me what my next step was, um, that really encouraged me to think about my next move, even if it might have been in two years, um, and helped expose me to some of the things um, that would help build my competencies um, for when I eventually either had the job or applied for the job. Awesome. And was there anything that you you did specifically to, to get to that level? Were, were there courses that you did or were there yeah we had I guess, we had some internal mentors yeah I mean I guess my managers at the time were were good mentors um we had some online courses there's different competencies um when you are a project manager you you don't necessarily have to have that keen focus on the detail you need to step back and understand the global remit and then the sites and the hospitals remit and how you fit in between. So there were definitely courses on project management and having that yeah. broad level oversight um, because when you are responsible for so many more sites and countries, you just can't have that focus on that one site. So there definitely were internal um, courses and, and coaching courses that we were exposed to. Awesome. And then obviously you've left Roche um, and then you moved on to Clarity Pharmaceutical, wasn't yes. that right? Yeah. So you're with Clarity Pharmaceutical for, if I remember correctly, just a year. Just over a yeah. year. Yeah, just a year. 
So why Clarity? Because from what I understand at the time, it was quite a, it was a smaller company. Yeah. And um, so what what made you choose to go to go there? Because I mean, after after ten years with Roche, um, quite a well known pharmaceutical yeah. company. I imagine there were many choices and many places that you could have potentially gone have, have gone to. And um, so w- what about Clarity Pharmaceutical kind of enticed you to go and yeah, just give us a bit yeah, of um, Well, I, I had really enjoyed my time at Roche and had been exposed to a lot of different um, departments. But I guess I'd always had that concern that that was the only company that I'd been exposed to. And I was worried that maybe I would have been a bit pigeonholed um, in the industry. Yeah. And Clarity Pharmaceuticals was a small startup biotech that was actually looking at a radioactive isotope for the purpose of diagnostics, but also therapeutics in a certain type of cancer treatment. Um, So the opportunity to go with them and be a bit of a strategic advisor and help identify um, a a particular niche market that expressed, that that dealt with neuroendocrine tumors was really interesting. I'd never been involved in that kind of cancer when I was at Roche, Um, but also having a really broad understanding of the oncology landscape from my time at Roche was really helpful to sort of understand where this would fit in the treatment landscape. Um, And it was an opportunity to get American experience in Australia. So their target audience or their their target health authority was the FDA. Um, And when you generally work for a big pharma company, you, in order to get that American experience, you have to be based in the US. So it was an opportunity to get American experience based in Sydney because the actual scientists for Clarity were based in Sydney. So it presented itself with a lot of interest, particularly the background was in nuclear medicine. So the first hospital that I went to, to go and work on one of their trials was actually the the one hospital that I used to work at. So I got to work with the old doctors that I used to, the the radiation scientists. So that, that was a really um, fun experience. Um, And it was great to learn about um, not necessarily a new market because I did have that experience from my clinical background but to get the American IND experience based in Sydney was really great as well. And obviously, Clarity being quite a small pharmaceutical com- company compared to Roche, how did that compare in terms of the culture, I guess? How, how did you kind of fit in um, when it compares to a big Yeah, I mean, I guess one? some of the appeal to it was they weren't, they weren't so process-driven like Roche had because they had, um, it was a bigger company, they had more defined processes. Clarity being a startup um, was just establishing themselves. So there wasn't, you know, you had a bit more opportunity to do different things. I I guess I had many hats. I was also a project lead taking one of their products going from the animal preclinical phase into phase one. Um, I was exposed to, I guess, some of the chemistry and manufacturing, um, logistics on delivery because radioactive compounds can't go very far. Um, because they decay Um, so there was an opportunity to get to do a lot of different things and that's that was one of the appeals when you work for a biotech as you get bigger you obviously work in your siloed department so it was very interesting to be exposed to various I wouldn't even say departments um, functions within the company yeah I do find that whenever when I've spoken to other people they say whenever they work in smaller companies you you end up wearing multiple hats many different yeah. hat model, multiple different hats as you say but i've i in my opinion i think that's such a such a great thing as well because you do get 
an insight into so many different departments yeah. within any sort of company. I guess when you work in, as you said, those larger pharma companies or if you're in corporate, when you work in those larger ones, you are quite um, siloed into just one area and you, do, you don't really know what else is going on in the company. Yeah. Um, so I or guess, what other yeah, drivers or whatever exactly. stresses. And I guess ultimately, um, now I'm back at Alexion, well, I'm at Alexion, back in clinical operations. And I guess after all of that, it's really driven home that clinical operations is probably where my passion and my interests lie. But having done so many different things and different um, functions within the life cycle of the product, I feel it makes me do my job better in clinical operations because I have an understanding of what the drivers are um, for, you know, medical, market access, commercial. Um, so yeah. it was all good experience for me in the end, even though I found myself working back in clinical operations. Awesome. And you just, funny enough, you just touched on the fact you are at Alexion Pharmaceuticals now. I've been there for about two, two years. years yeah. um, give or take. So how, how is life at Alexion Alexion been your new role. Um, just remind us of what the role is and kind of a bit of background on what exactly it is that you, you do. In this yeah, role. so I have been there for two years. I'm the Associate Director for Project uh, Country Operations Management. So basically um, overseeing the, the trials that come to Australia. Um, and I guess our drivers are driving more clinical trials to Australia and New Zealand. And it's a company that awesome. specializes in rare diseases. It's actually just been bought by AstraZeneca, but it's the rare disease unit uh, yes. of um, AstraZeneca. And um, in terms of rare diseases, what rare diseases are you guys kind of working on at the moment? Uh, so some of the commercial ones are more hematology and nephrology based, but we've got um, quite a few metabolic um, genetic disorders that are in the pipeline as well. Awesome. And obviously as an associate director, you're in quite a, a senior leadership role. Um, how, how does it feel to be as, as a woman in, in such a high senior, senior leadership role where I guess based in history and in pharma it is um, usually men that are in those kind of high roles how, how has that process been um, finally getting to, to that sort of level? Yeah I mean when I was at Roche um, within ClinOps it was definitely more female driven, but outside of that, and the GM at Roche had only ever been a man in the time and, and even now to this day. Um, but my current position, I report to a woman, she's the regional head of country operations management. And up until late last year, the, the head of our medical department was a woman, the head of our market access is a woman and our GM is a mm. woman. Um, so there, there have been plenty of women in senior leadership positions at Alexion. So it's, it's certainly very inspiring. Um, yeah. And I feel like I've definitely been able to follow some of their footsteps. And how, how do you find and feel about a woman's approach when it comes to leadership in comparison to, I guess, the leadership that you would have had at Roche and I'm assuming the leadership in, um, Clarity yeah. was also, yeah, that was, um, uh, yeah, mostly male dominated. How do, you, how do you find that kind of... Well, in my experience, experience, I think, to be honest, in the last two years at Alexion, um, the bulk of that has been over the pandemic. And so there's been a lot of fear, a lot of concern um, in that time. And our GM led the team with a lot of empathy. So I'd have to say, in my experience, yeah. it was 
you know, we still had our metrics that we needed to deliver, our goals that we needed to deliver. We had commercial expectations that we had to meet. Uh, well, the company did, not in Clinots. Um, but she approached it with uh, a real sense of empathy and making sure that we were feeling okay um, managing because there was obviously a lot of fear if you did get COVID and how you'd feel and, and what yeah. have you. So, yeah, I think in my recent experience, it's definitely been more of a soft skill approach and leading with a lot of empathy and caring. Yeah, and I guess it's what everyone knows the experience that we've all had with COVID has been something that's been completely new to every single person that's currently on this earth. And I guess it was almost trying to navigate the unknown, trying to understand and appreciate that everyone is going to be in a completely different situation. Yeah. For example, I know you you have a your home, you have a husband, you have a, you have a kid. Um, so I guess it's also trying to realize that, okay, I guess everyone has always been coming to the office for the better part, part of, I guess, 50 mm. years plus. How are we going to navigate this when we have you, for example, who is a senior leadership role and now your child is running around yeah, your, and your, your living room while you're trying to, in, and you're homeschooling. Yeah. What, what are our options? I guess, yeah, I, I guess from what you said, the empathetic side, and given people the wiggle room to kind yeah, of Yeah, and that's it out. exactly what they did. So as a company, we tried to block out meetings from 12 to 2. And, you know, I guess when you're dealing, um, when your key stakeholders are clinicians and hospitals, you, you don't always get that luxury of having that block between 12 and 2. Particularly yeah. when you're trying to get a hold of a doctor, you might only get them over their lunch break. But by and yeah. large... As, as a company, they didn't place meetings in that time to give people a bit of wiggle room, to give people the chance to catch up on things, particularly if people were homeschooling that day. Um, so there was definitely a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of wiggle room. And there was no, you know, nine to five concept anymore. So people were definitely in a position where they could work later on in the evenings or whenever it suited them. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate a pharma company, although our we're very patient centric. It is a business after all. And if you don't, yeah, you know, if sure. the commercial team isn't able to connect with their, their key stakeholders and make sales, you know, there's not going to be a business at the end of the day. Um, for us in clinical trials, we still had to make sure that we recruited our patients. And that was really rather difficult over the, the two years, particularly when we were in lockdown, because a lot of patients were scared. A lot of hospitals yeah. had actually imposed sanctions that they weren't recruiting any to any new studies. Um, so, yeah, so there was still that pressure to make your targets. But it it seemed because of the, the wiggle room, um, that pressure had dissipated. And And, you know, the team, the company had given a lot of self-care gifts which you know i think is probably not something that a lot of men would think of but there was a lot of nice things yeah, sure. that were sent to us as a thank you um for everything that we've been going through and, and those little things certainly did help over the two years that's awesome yeah with with our company as well they've sent through a few times a few little care yeah, packages to everyone wine yeah chocolate <laughs> candles <laughs> uh champagne yeah. We pretty much sent it to everyone and they're like, no one open your gifts until their Friday's Zoom yeah, call. Same. And everyone just opens it up at the same, same. time. Although we made so the mistake once of touches um, just go a long way. sending cheese and then people didn't put it in the <laughs> fridge. So now we've had to be very explicit fridge. on this requires refrigeration place in the fridge yeah. before the meeting. So we learned the hard way. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, those little things did go a really those long way. Those little things go a long way. Um, and just to finish off, 
Um, I just want to talk a little bit about pharma and how you see the future, the future landscape being, and um, what your hopes are for the future within pharma. I really hope. Well, particularly in in clinical operations, you don't work solely within the Australian business. You actually report to a global function, which means global time zones. So that can get very exhausting if you aren't afforded the flexibility. Um, to date, I've had that flexibility, but yeah, I, I do hope that um, pharma as an industry adopts this flexible way of working so that we can integrate our personal lives um, with work because it's it's not really a nine to five job. Awesome. Wow. Thank you very, very much, My Jessica, pleasure. for sitting down with me for this, this amazing podcast. Um, again, your career and what you've done coming from Canada, working from in clinical into pharmaceutical, making your way to the position that you are now is, uh, is something um, amazing. And your career progression has been amazing and, and something that people should really, um, I think, in my opinion anyway, and hope they, hopefully they agree once they listen to this, is something to uh, aspire thank to. You. But again, thank you very much for taking the time out. It's been my pleasure.